Um, we'll start out with a story. A, a, a professor in a liberal theological seminary was teaching from the book of Daniel. His class consisted of young men who would be future church leaders. At the beginning of his lecture, he said, now I want you to understand that Daniel was written in the second century BC, not by some Daniel who lived in the sixth century BC. The facts were written, as all history is, after the events took place. One young man raised his hand and he asked, how can that be, sir, when Christ said in Matthew 24, 16, that it was written by Daniel? And the professor paused a moment and looked at the student, looked him in the eyes and said, young man, I know more about the book of Daniel than Jesus did. <laughs> now, I took some time this week to, uh, to read carefully, especially a couple of particular commentaries, three of them all, but two particular ones, who don't agree with my interpretation of chapter 9. And uh, I, I just wished I could have asked them some of the questions I wanted to ask. I wish I had been in this class. Nevertheless, here's something you need to know, and this is very important all the way through chapter 9. This prophecy that we're going to study is about the Jews, whereas the other prophecies of Daniel that we have been studying, they've been beasts and animals and represented Gentile nations. So what we're going to be studying now is about the Jewish people, God's people. Another quick story. A rabbi, Simon Luzato, said that a prolonged and thoroughgoing study of this prophecy, meaning the ninth chapter of Daniel, might result in all Jews becoming Christians, as it was his view that it could not be denied on the basis of Daniel's chronology that the Messiah had already appeared. So Daniel was reading... In Jeremiah 29, he had the scrolls. For, they don't have books. He had scrolls. And he was reading what we call Jeremiah 29. And he learned that he was to pray because the 70 years was up and he had to pray for the restoration of Jerusalem. Now, just so you know what that means is that when Daniel was a teenager, the Babylonians came in to the southern kingdom of Judah, that's where, Jer that's where uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, that's where the temple was, and that's where Jerusalem is, of course. And so here he is as a teenager, and he and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, we know their Babylonian names by heart, most of us, and many, 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 many other Jews were exiled into Babylon. And uh, that was almost 70 years before this happens, that that happened. And uh, Daniel was nearly 90. He was in his 80s when what we're reading and what is happening is happening. And you've, those of you that have been here for the whole study, you have to admire Daniel from a teenager to this time. Here he is way into his 80s, still going on for the Lord, trusting God uh, without a complaint. And so we're going to start out with a prayer more things are shaped by prayer than we'll ever know. Prayer is an expression of what we know of God and his word and of ourselves. And we may fool even most people most of the time, but we can never fool God. 
Therefore, prayer is a very important lifeline. So now look in your Bibles, eyes on the page, verse 1, chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, now we've already been studying about Darius, a Mede by descent who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So he was reading in our Bibles, uh, Jeremiah chapter 25, I'm going to put it on the screen here, uh, verse 11 to 14, and it reads this way. This is the prophet Jeremiah, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, a long time before, more than 70 years before all of this that we're about to talk about is going to happen. This entire land, it reads, will become a desolate wasteland, Israel, and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And then after the 70 years of captivity are over, God says to Jeremiah, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins, says the Lord. I'll make the country of the Babylonians a wasteland forever. I will bring upon them all the terrors I have promised in this book, all the penalties announced by Jeremiah against the nations. Many nations and great kings will enslave the Babylonians, just as they enslaved my people, that's the Jewish people, and I will punish them, the Babylonians, in proportion to the suffering they caused my people. Now look back in your Bibles at verse 3. So Daniel is reading Jeremiah, and he says, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. God's sovereign purposes are never revealed in Scripture as excuses for personal laziness in prayer, but instead they are calls to action. Daniel believed the Word, God's Word, enough to pray. Nevertheless, praying is not wish fulfillment, but the hard work of calling on God by faith in His will and His Word. Let's go back to Jeremiah uh, on the screen, verse 10 to 14 in chapter 29. This is very familiar scriptures to many of you. This is what the Lord says. You'll be in Babylon for 70 years, but then, God speaking through Jeremiah, I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, talking about the nation of Israel, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me, now this is a very important word, wholeheartedly. If you will find me, if you look for me wholeheartedly, I will be found by you says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your land. So there's three powerful points of prayer here. Three powerful points of prayer. Number one, 
Daniel expected God to literally fulfill his word. Number two, Daniel realized that prayer was the conduit through which God would fulfill his word. And number three, Daniel realized his need for humility and confession of sin. Prayer must come through a holy vessel, humbly dedicated to the Lord, totally dependent on him for the answer. So Daniel prayed with humility, with fasting. He did not want anything to take him away from his petitions toward God. Putting on sackcloth was representative of being totally committed to pray until God answered. And by the way, it had been the habit of Daniel to pray three times a day for all of his life, even as a teenager. His prayer is one of the longest and most detailed prayers in all of Scripture. So let's take a real good look at it. Verse 4 now, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, the next word is one of the most important words to know about prayer in the Bible. We, W-E. You see, Daniel identified with his people. We are to identify with the body of Christ, the church. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. You know, when I'm sometime out on my bike ride, I pray through the Lord's Prayer, and, uh, you know, I'll say something like this, give us today, oh, Lord, give me today everything I need. No. I do, I do that a lot, but just proves I'm not perfect. I'm not a Daniel. But, no, no, us, we, the body of Christ, the people of God, that's how God supplies our needs, through the people of God. So he identifies, rather than saying, I, Daniel, have been, since a teenager, I've been so perfect, I've done this, I've done that. No. He says, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Verse 7, Lord, you are righteous. Now, God is always true to himself. He never changes. God is always faithful. God is righteous. But this day, we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame. Lord, because we have sinned against you, uh, we're ashamed. Lord, our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, and I'll just add that they all knew about the servant of God, Moses, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. When the prodigal son of Luke 15, most people know that parable Jesus told, when the prodigal son came to his senses, it says, 
he realized he had not only sinned against his father, his earthly father, but he had sinned against heaven, meaning he sinned against God. King David came in Psalm 51 and said the same thing. Against you, you only have I sinned, he says. But what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah the Hittite who he had murdered? But he saw ultimately when we sin, we're sinning against God. Verse 12. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. The temple is destroyed. Jerusalem's basically desolate. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. The scattering of the children of Israel was not occasioned by one sin, but by generation after generation of failure to obey the law or to give heed to the prophets. It's the same in America today. The, the, the trouble we're in is that we have forgotten God for a very long time. God is patient with us and it's never too late. It's never too late for us to humble ourselves in prayer and we must do that. The only hope that our country has ultimately, the only hope is that the people of God will rise up in prayer to God and pray for this country. Verse 15 now in, the, in nine, chapter 9. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, that's the book of Exodus, we who made for ourselves a name that endures to this day, we have sinned after all you did for us. We have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servants. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open our eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, notice the personal relationship here. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Now, in all of that, notice how Daniel magnifies God and humbles himself. We need to pray like that for America. In all our prayers, but for America. In the Old Testament, the standard illustration of the power of God is the deliverance from Egypt. In the New Testament, the standard illustration of the power of God is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle Paul wrote these words. He wrote, I pray that the eyes of your heart, he's, he's talking to the church in Ephesus, so he's talking to us. I pray that the eyes of your heart, of our hearts, may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which he has called us 
the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realm, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Now, that's the prayer. Then we come to what is called the 70 weeks of Daniel. And uh, I'm praying that you'll really understand this is so powerful. But Daniel says this, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, and you know the one he's talking about if you've been here, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. That's the key to it, the time of the evening sacrifice. You see, there was no evening sacrifice because there's no altar, no temple. But Daniel had been obeying these times and had kept at his prayer until this important time arrived. He had been in captivity for close to 70 years and had not forgotten God, nor had he modified the worship of his God. That's why God used him so powerfully. And so in verse 22, Daniel says, Gabriel instructed me, and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. Now, verse 23 is really hopeful but important. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I've come to tell you. Now, I know that all of us here have prayed prayers, and we... We may, if we really know our theology, we know God has heard us, but we might think, oh, well, he's not even listening to me. No, no, he hears everything. And when we pray, biblically and rightly, toward God with humility, there's always an answer. We may not really understand the answer or see it the way we would like it for sure, but God always answers. And in this case, he had already been prepared because Daniel had been prepared for all of these years. And Gabriel says in 23, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you. Why? Because you are highly esteemed, Daniel. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. I want you to understand what I'm going to tell you. Now, Daniel was highly esteemed because he lived for God. His waking thoughts were dominated by God's covenant promises or purposes. He longed uh, for the people's return to Jerusalem, and he longed for the sacrifices to start again. Daniel longed to worship God. You see, God desires that we worship and obey him. A good question would be, for all of us, and I'm looking in a mirror, Am I praying for the revival of the people of God? Am I waiting for the return of Christ? Am I living as an eschatological person? If you were here on Sunday, you know why I'm saying that. An eschatological person is a person that lives for, eschatology is about the future, 
We live now in light of the future. It's not one of these things where, oh, I just live one day at a time and enjoy my day, and that's good. I'm not against that, but, but that's not the idea. The idea is I've got another day, but the Lord's going to return, and then there's going to be the new heavens and the new earth. There's going to be all of these things. The rapture's going to come, you know, so I'm living today in anticipation of all of that. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, I put this on the screen too. It reads, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this. This is through Isaiah the prophet. I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those of repentant hearts. Now, the following verses of Daniel are the most exciting prophetic verses in the Bible. It is obvious Gabriel expected Daniel to fully understand this prophecy, both practically and spiritually. The following prophecy is God's plan for Israel. Now, uh, if you're not used to it, this could even be very confusing, but let me just start this way. When you see the word weeks, it always means seven years. A week is seven, uh, is seven years. Now, I'm going to say why later, but I just want you to see that from the beginning. Now, there's a lot of math here that we have to get together. So we'll see how good you are at math. You ready? Verse 24. Seven times seven is... It doesn't say seven times seven, so you weren't looking at your Bibles. <laughs> nor was I. 70 times 7 is 490. So 77s, 490, their years, are decreed, now Daniel's being told this, for your people, the Jews, and your holy city, Jerusalem. Now, keep looking at your Bible. There's, there's six things that come one after the other. So here's, here's what this is all about in that time. To finish transgression, one. Two, to put an end to sin. Three, to atone for wickedness. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal up vision and prophecy. And six, to anoint the most holy. Now look at verse 25. Know and understand this, Daniel. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem... So there's a starting point, a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes. I think we know who that is. There will be seven sevens. So seven times seven and 62 sevens. What's 62 times seven? Quick. Oh, somebody's got it written down in their Bibles. <laughs> or they're a mathematical genius. <laughs> 62 sevens, so 49 sevens, 62 sevens, 434. So 434 plus 49 is how much? 483. You got my notes, I bet. <laughs> yeah, 483 years. And so it will be rebuilt. Okay, that means the temple will be rebuilt and Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets in a trench, but in times of trouble. Now look at verse 26. 
After the 62 sevens, that's 434 years, the anointed one will be cut off, that means killed, and will have nothing. Looks like it was all a failure. The people of the ruler who will come, that's the Roman rule, and we'll see that in a moment, will destroy the city of Jerusalem, or uh, the temple, and the sanctuary, and the end will come like a flood, and war will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. So that looks pretty bad. And then verse 27, the last verse, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. One seven. In the middle of the seven, that's three and a half, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination. Now, if you're here last week, you know what this is talking about. That causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So, we need to keep an outline in mind. If you had a pen, it'd be worth sort of writing it down a little bit. But here's the outline. They're each verse. Verse 24, that's an outline for the whole prophecy. So just verse 24 is an outline for the whole prophecy. Verse 25 gives us information regarding the first 69 sevens. Verse 26 pictures our present time that we're living in now. And verse 27 tells us about what will happen during the last seven years of world history before Jesus comes again. The 70 weeks prophecy is about the Jewish people. Paul told us in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 that the nation of Israel has been set aside for a time until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled in history. Now, we've been studying the, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 7, but especially chapter 2 in Daniel, you saw Babylon as the head of gold, and then there's the silver and the bronze and, and Rome and all of that kind of stuff that we studied. That was all of world history. And so... Uh, that's all the time of the Gentiles. It started with the head of gold, with the Babylonian, uh, the, the Babylonian captivity. So that's the beginning of Gentile rule. It ended uh, the rule in Jerusalem. And it will end, the time of the Gentiles will end just before the last seven of Daniel's prophecy, the last week of the prophecy, seven years. Then God will again deal with Israel as a nation. So every time we see a news item or read of Israel, we should realize the power of God to restore his people. This prophecy is about the Jewish people. As Daniel was praying about Jerusalem and his people, God answered the prayer beyond what he could have ever imagined. And God tells Daniel uh, what will happen to his people during the times of the Gentiles and after that. So... The 77s, I've already given it away on purpose, but now we'll say it again. The question, the 77s, what period of time is this? Is it minutes, days, months, or years? Well, I've already told you it's years. Why do I say that? Well, since Daniel was thinking in years, remember how it started? At this point, years must be involved here. Daniel had been reading Jeremiah's prophecy about a literal 70 years of captivity. Therefore, I would expect that this prophecy would also be literal and would fit into a proven time frame. Into a proven time frame. The majority of conservative scholars agree that the number is 
70 sets of seven-year periods or 490 years. The calendar we would use here is the Jewish calendar, which has 360 days in a year, and they would occasionally insert an extra month as needed to catch up on the time frame. And in the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we also see these 30-day months. Verse 24 by itself is a picture of the time from Daniel until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So verse 24, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city. Now the word decreed, talking about a specific time period, means to determine. This is God's decree, so it's definitely going to happen. In 2 Chronicles 36, 21, we read these words. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Now, this is the whole context of the book of Daniel. In 2 Chronicles, we learn the reason for the exile where Daniel the teenager and his friends and many others were sent to Babylon. The people did not obey the every seven years injunction to let the land rest for a year. God is very patient and warned them for 70 of those Sabbaths or for a period of 490 years. He warned them. They were now to be exiled one year for every seven, which was 70 years. Daniel was reading this when he went to prayer, realizing that 70 years was almost up. And then Gabriel came to him and gave him this prophecy, which would naturally be taken as 70 weeks of years or another time period of 490 years. The prophecy is about the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Now, we cannot say this is a prophecy that includes the church, as Jerusalem has nothing to do with the church, and the promises given to the Jewish people are to be fulfilled apart from the church. So let's go back. Six things uh, in verse 24, under verse 24 there. Six things. Let me just tell you what they are. I'll put them, line them down out on the screen. Number one, finish transgressions. Number two, to put an end to sin. And number three, to atone for wickedness. Now, transgression, sin, and wickedness are the three major words for sin in the Hebrew Scriptures. And then the next three... Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So this also demonstrates how God's plan for the Jews is to impact the whole world. One uh, commentator named Kyle, pretty well known, from the contents of these six statements, it thus appears that the termination of the 70 weeks coincides with the end of the present course of the world. Even Joyce Baldwin, uh, modern, she just died a few years ago, the scholar wrote, this is speaking of the accomplishment of God's purpose for all history. So what does it all mean? To finish transgression means to bring an end. Daniel has been praying about the sin that his people have committed, the sin of apostasy. 
And Daniel was praying for the restoration of his people. This prophecy is the ultimate fulfillment of that prayer, the people of Israel restored to their God to put an end to sin. The idea that sin is completely done away with, obviously, this has not happened yet. Have you watched the news tonight even or whenever? This cannot happen until the second coming. Number three, to atone for wickedness. The idea behind this phrase is that sin is completely taken care of in some way. Now, the Jewish reader, like Daniel, would be thinking of a blood sacrifice as an atonement or covering. Each of these statements form a progression. The first two talk about sin ending, but now we see that it ultimately has to be atoned for. That would fit Jewish thinking if sin had to be atoned for by a blood sacrifice at the temple, which isn't there anymore. To atone means to make a covering. The covering would be the Messiah shedding his blood on the cross. So that's a picture of Jesus. Now, the fourth thing, to bring in everlasting righteousness, only the second coming can accomplish bringing in everlasting righteousness. And number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. Now, what does that mean? Well, when the 70 weeks are over, there's no more need for future prophecy. To seal up a scroll was to consider it completed. And number six, to anoint the most holy. This could be a place or a person. This could be talking about the dedication of a future temple you can read about in Ezekiel. We'll do that another time. And Daniel is being told that these six things have come to be completed before the end can finally come. These six things were not accomplished when Jesus died on the cross. Now, look at verse 25. Daniel, know and understand this. So this is an answer to Daniel's prayer for his people. From the issuing of the decree, so we need to know what that is, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Messiah, the ruler comes There'll be seven sevens, that's 49 years, and 62 sevens, 434 years. And it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Let's just stop there for just a moment. All of these things, some of you aren't used to this prophecy, you're thinking, I'm just all confused here. We're talking about hundreds of years, Daniel's being told, and this was written hundreds of years before these things happened. And so they better happen precisely, or we're not going to believe it. Because it's impossible for it to happen precisely. It's hundreds of years before, and we're told exactly when Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem. Now, the decree, what's it, what's it mean, the decree? There's four of them. In uh, 2 Chronicles 36, we read, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem which is in Judah, any of you who are his people may go there for this task, and may the Lord your God be with you. Uh, this is also in Ezra chapter 1, and this could not be the proper decree as it only is to rebuild the temple but not Jerusalem. It has to be exact or it doesn't count. There's another decree by Darius, who we've already learned about. It is more like the reissuing of the decree in Ezra chapter 6, it is very thorough, but also only mentions the rebuilding of the temple and not the city. And then the third decree is in the book of Ezra in your Old Testament, chapter 7, in a letter to Ezra from King Artaxerxes. But 
but also only mentions the temple. And then the final one. We studied this many times here. Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah goes into the king. He's a little bit afraid because to go before the king, you better have a good reason or the king could do away with you. And so he's before uh, the king, Artaxerxes, and the king asked uh, Nehemiah, well, how can I help you? And then it says, with a prayer to the God of heaven. It's, the way it's written is, a quick prayer to the God of heaven. Oh, God, help me. I replied, if it pleases the king... And if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. And there's a lot more, but that's all I'm putting in here. The book of Nehemiah, then, the whole book is the story of how Nehemiah did all that and rebuilt the temple and uh, houses around it and everything. Artaxerxes Longimanus issued this decree. This is interesting now. In the month of Nisan, that's Jewish month, 445 B.C., 445 years before Christ. This is a well-attested date that can even be found in Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, I remember when I first started preaching on this forever ago, uh, I would say, so if somebody here must have an Encyclopedia Britannica. Well, I doubt if any of you do anymore. But you can go online and look it up and find out that that's an extremely well-known date. They know exactly what that date was. So verse 26, after the 62 sevens, there's already been seven weeks, therefore seven plus 62 equals 69 weeks or 483 years. Some of you are going, well, I'm I'm totally confused. I know, me too. Uh, The anointed one will be cut off. That means to kill or destroy. It describes capital punishment, Jesus at the crucifixion. And it says, interesting phrase, and will have nothing. Literally, it reads, but nothing for him. It means that he will, uh, Jesus, it's talking about Jesus, it means he'll not be received by his people as in John's gospel. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own, in the King James says, received him not. They didn't receive him. And it looked as if his ministry was in vain. Even all his own disciples deserted him. So here's the numbers again. Seven times seven is how many years? The completion of Nehemiah's building program. If we st- as I said, we studied the book of Nehemiah thoroughly on that. And 62 times seven is? 434 years, totally 483 years. Now, I'm going to give you an assignment. and it's, This is so exciting, you really need to do it. Sir Robert Anderson, who is a Scotland Yard detective wrote a book called The Coming Prince. And then he, uh, and it was all about what we're just studying. And it was heavily criticized by many scholars, because after all, he was a detective. What would he know? And so he wrote another book, Daniel and the Critics' Den. I encourage you to read those books. They're easily to come by on Amazon or if you have a Kindle or something like that. They're amazing to read. And you'll be amazed if you do. Now, but here's why I'm saying it. Anderson's work is based on a 360-day years. And so he, he worked it all out mathematically. He was a brilliant man. And it's 173,880 days. Our corresponding dates would be 
March 14, 445 B.C. to April 6, 32 A.D., and that would be 173,880 days or 483 years to the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and was worshipped as the anointed one. It's the most amazing prophecy. And I urge you to purchase those books and, and do your own study. And now still verse 26. The people of the ruler will come. That's the Romans in Paul's day. We're studying Paul in Jesus' day. The ruler will come. He will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, this is really interesting because here we have a picture of someone destroying the temple and Jerusalem after the Messiah is killed. So Jesus is here. And it happened 38 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. It happened in 70 AD. General Titus came in to take over the temple. He didn't mean to destroy it, but he had so much pushback from the Jewish people that was not expected that they basically burned the temple down. And every single, all of the gold in the temple melted like water. It was just totally destroyed it. Well, in Matthew 24, Jesus is with his disciples just before the cross. And it says this, Jesus left the temple and was walking away with his disciples, and his disciples came up to see him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? So Jesus is looking at the temple. This is Herod's temple. It was an incredible temple, like a wonder of the world. And he says, uh, you know, and it's the kind of thing that in that day especially you could ever never imagine it not being there. And so Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. There's no way they have to look and think, what's wrong with them? That's not going to happen. Not a chance. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and 38 years later, exactly that happened right on schedule. And then look at verse 26 again. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Jesus also said in Matthew 24 that one of the signs of the second coming will be wars and rumors of wars. Are there any wars going on these days? Notice that it says after the 69 weeks, this all happened then there is obviously some kind of gap between verse 26 and 27. And we have to ask the question, how long is the gap? Well, so far, it's 2,000 years. All of verse 25 and 26 has been fulfilled historically, but verse 27 is yet to be fulfilled. These gaps are common in Scripture. The best-known one is recorded in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus goes into a synagogue, and he's called up to read, and he reads about himself in Isaiah chapter 61 in front of all those people that are there in the synagogue. But he stops reading at a point just before the Messiah is described coming in judgment. He makes it clear that he is the person Isaiah 61 is talking about. And so he stops right where the scriptures uh, describe his before the coming in judgment. And the reason for that is Jesus came the first time to save, not to judge. But he is coming again. The 2,000-year gap occurred because the Jewish people as a whole did not receive Jesus, but in the future, that will change as Paul makes clear in his letter to the Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Now, 
as we're here today, Israel is a nation again, so it may not be long before this last seven years of Daniel starts again. So here is what will be coming, verse 27, last verse. He, we need to know who he is, will confirm a covenant with many for seven years, one seven, seven years. And the middle of the seven, three and a half years, you can see this in the book of Revelation too, by the way, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. An end. So there has to be a temple. There's an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Now, if you were here last week, you know right away what we're talking about. Until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So the question is, who is he? Of verse 27, who is going to desecrate the temple in the same way Titus did in A.D. 70? It, it couldn't be Jesus, as he never made any covenant for seven years, and he didn't break a covenant after three and a half years. And he certainly would never set an abomination in the temple or anywhere else. The covenant that Jesus made was an eternal, not a temporal covenant. He is the coming Antichrist who is pictured in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, which we've talked about in our exposition of those chapters. In 2 Thessalonians, New Testament, chapter 2, verse 4, it tells us about he. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, last week, You'll remember this. Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking, and he's saying, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, and then he says, let the reader understand. In other words, he's saying, you know what Daniel wrote, don't you? And they did. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. So we're talking about something greater than what happened to the Jews during A.D. 70, greater than what happened during the Holocaust of World War II. So this is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, the one who came out of the ten-horned beast and overtook three horns, and this is the future Antichrist. And again, I, it's, it take me too long, and I've got to take the time to go to Revelation to show you that also. What an encouragement for Daniel to see God had an eternal plan for the Jewish people. The preservation of the Jewish people is an anthropological miracle. Uh, I remember hearing a sermon once from a scholar that understood anthropology and all of these things, and he called the sermon... Uh, where are the Hittites today? Well, they're, they're gone. You can look at all of the ites in the Bible. They don't exist. But uh, the Jewish people is, is totally different. There are American Jews, Canadian Jews, Polish Jews, Russian Jews. The Jewish people have remained a distinct group throughout all of history, even though many have tried to wipe them out completely. Now, why is that? Well, because God is not finished with them yet and has a great plan for them as a people. And it was through the Jews that the Savior of the world has come. It will be to a restored Jewish nation that the final coming of Jesus Christ will take place. 
And I believe we are poised near the beginning of the last seven years, the last seven, and I believe we are now awaiting for what Paul wrote about in 1 Thessalonians. We call it the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you'll not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Now, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns, this is talking about him coming for the church, will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And first, the believers who have already died will rise from their graves. Their bodies will rise from their graves. And then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up, or uh, in the uh, raptured, same word, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we'll be with the Lord forever. But it says then, so encourage each other with these words. Now, listen. There are those who believe the church will still exist during that last seven years uh, or part of this last seven years. But this would contradict what Jesus said about not knowing the time of his return. It's going to be a terrible time. In the first three and a half years will be a great time. And then there's a big change right in the middle of it where the Antichrist really shows us what he's, about, what he's all about. And then it'll be worse than anything you could ever imagine. And that's what all of the trumpets and the different judgments are in the book of Revelation. But if that's not true, if, if it turns out uh, that we're not raptured out and the last seven years starts, then it contradicts something that Jesus said pretty strongly. He said this, Mark 13, 32. No one knows about that day or that hour. He's talking about the second coming not even the angels in heaven, nor, nor the Son, not even Jesus, but only the Father. So be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. And so the point is we're not looking for the coming of the Antichrist, but the becoming of Jesus Christ. And the whole prophecy is about the Jews. It's not about the church. The church is gone. In Revelation, after chapter 6, there's no church. Even though John wrote about the church, extensively up to chapter 4, he had no problem with the word church. It just doesn't exist in the rest of the book. And then finally, I'm closing with this, and then we have one more thing we want to do. John 16, 33, Jesus said to us, the church, I told you all this, this is, all this is chapters 14, 15, and 16. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, because I've overcome the world. And so this gives us incredible 